0: Not much of a singer, but I like to sing, especially the hymns. And uh, we was talking about uh, David made mention in prayer about men and women that wrote them. And, and uh, when my mother passed away back in May of 2012, you know I've mentioned Davy Barger was my pastor when I was a kid at Sandusky Avenue. Well, she played the piano at my mom's funeral. And I noticed she was playing just music while everybody was coming in. And all these songs were familiar to me. And, of course, they were familiar from growing up. And, of course, she's playing them. And they became very familiar when I became a Christian. Well, I didn't even think about it because I just sang the hymns, whatever they told me to turn to. That's what I sang when I was a kid and after I was saved. But I asked Miss Barger, I said, thank you so much. I mean, she must have been in her 80s. I said, thank you for playing at my mom's funeral. And I said, now, these hymns are very familiar to me. She goes, oh. She goes, well, they should be. She says, I played them when you were a little kid. She said, I mostly play Fanny Crosby songs. I was like, huh. So now if I had to grab a hymn just off the cuff, I'd pick some Fanny Crosby song. And I I began to do a little bit of research on my Google. Well, I don't know when she became blind, but she was blind. And she just wrote poems, Christian poems. And then someone put them to music. And and it's just so beautiful. So you think about, like you said, the men and women that write these things. Uh, Even when you were sharing last week, I think it was last week about the different hymns most of them start out as a poem. Then so, hey, let's write that to a song. And and so, you know, I don't know if that's how the contemporary music people do it now. They kind of put down words, then maybe they put the music with it later. And uh, so, Fanny Crosby is one of my favorites. So, uh, just because they're familiar with me since I was a kid. If you would please tonight, we're going to be in Second Peter, chapter one, and we're going to be in Psalm nineteen. And so. Uh, we, we've started, I've started this little series on Wednesday nights of, you know, a question and an answer, a, a catechizing, uh, of, of, so to speak. So this is question number four, question number four, and we'll start in second Peter here in a moment, verse one. But the first, the fourth question is, what does God's word, the Bible say about itself? You know, many times we, uh, we think about, um, you know, using God's word to evangelize, using God's word to encourage ourselves, to, to renew our minds and things. And, and so we've got to ask ourselves, well, then what does the Bible say about itself as far as being inspired of God, being perfect, being infallible? And I guess we could go into, I've got a few little things. We could go into the history of how the Bible came about from the Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew, and how it got interpreted in different things. We could go through all that, but we're not going to. Okay, because all I know is we have our our translation. You know, either whether it's a word for word, or I was explaining to someone the other day what a phrase by phrase, like an NIV might might not have verse 27 and 28 when she's when she's following me in the New King James. I was well because they interpreted the phrase instead of word for word, and therefore it may be, for lack of words, missing a verse that my New King James might have, or a New American Standard for that matter, or something like that. And so when we think about God's word. What does it say about itself as far as it's inspired, it's infallible, it's perfect? Um, We know that this English version is not um, perfect in the sense of someone had to translate from the original. Maybe get other manuscripts and all that kind of scholarly stuff. But we do have the Word of God in English form, in our own language. And preferably a translation that you are couple with the English speaking to you. Um, had a lady at my other church. Um, she was a King James only not because she thought that was the only translation there is in the world that you can use. That's just what she grew up with the 1611 King James. And I grew up with that as a kid. And I remember I like the year I graduated 1980. I was not a Christian <clears throat> at all. And my grandmother Holstein said, what do you want for your graduation? And, of course, I wanted to be all spiritual to Grandma. I said, I need a white Bible with a zipper on it, you know, a little metal cross at the end of it. And that's what she gave me for my graduate gift in 1980. Now, the interesting thing is, is the day that Bruce McRae took me to church in 1983, three and a half years later of that senior year of that May of 80, I still had that little white Bible. And that's what I took to church that day because I thought, well, you've got to have a Bible if you go to church, right? And I remember really struggling with that because it used older uh, English, that, and I definitely wasn't much of a reader anyways, but the lady at that church brought me to Psalm 139. I was preaching on it on Mother's Day, where it talks about we're fearfully and wonderfully made, our mother's womb, and, and she said, and she, and she was adamant that the King James is all she wanted to read. I said, okay. Well, she went to that Psalm 139 with her King James. She says, what does that word compassive, mean so i had to google it i said i don't know because i mean i knew where she was at i knew what mine says but i was trying to teach her a lesson and not because the king james is bad i said so well it says first of all it's an archaic word that we don't normally use it compassive i said it means to encompass to surround and she goes oh and i'm thinking this lady's in her 80s she'll only look at the king james and she didn't even know what that word meant in her own bible now, does that mean there's something wrong with the King James? No. You just got to have a dictionary. But the point is, is that when we think of having a Bible in our own language, not, not only just English, but maybe what's more comfortable with you, a translation that's more comfortable with the words it used, it, it speaks to you, uh, it's uh, for lack like of words, your street language or whatever. And that's why when I had that King James, I was really struggling. This was 1983, so the new King James came out in 92 or something like that. He said, oh, I go down to the Baptist bookstore. That's when it was over by the old South Roads Mall. And uh, that became a shopping strip, and then that became a mall. So I went in there, and I told the lady what I was struggling with. And she goes, well, check this out. That's a new translation. I like, what's that? The New King James. You're like, oh, whoa, well, it's got a familiar name. And that's what I've always kind of stuck with is the New King James Version or translation. I used to use the New American Standard quite a bit. I used it for about 10 years. I really liked the New American Standard, but you say, well, then why are you preaching out of the New King James? Well, I had a church where I told them up front, you might want to get a paperback, New American Standard, because that's what I preach out of. Well, within three glorious months of being pastor, they said, maybe you should change translations. I said, okay, and I figure that's not a hill I want to die on. okay? So I put aside my New American Standard, and I went down to the other Lifeway store that used to be there on 71st Street, and I was just kind of because I wanted to study Bible that way. It's kind of a commentary and a reading for me. And, and so I was looking and looking. I was like, man, I'm getting pretty pricey. Huh. I could always rely on this commentary. Just get what I to preach out of. And a young man that was uh, my oldest son's age uh, got saved while he was in high school. And he knew me as Papa Smurf. Because they called my oldest son in high school Smurf. So I'm Papa Smurf, you know. Everything but the white beard. And so he... Uh, He said, what you doing, Papa Smurf? I told him about the situation, and he was just surrendered to the ministry. And he says, you pick out what you want, and his wife, uh, I don't remember, me and Katrina will pay for it. I said, no, don't do that, Jerry. No, we'll take care of you, Papa Smurf. You you put up with me when I was in high school and everything. So I, I picked out one. It was a New King James. It was the other New King James that I have, John MacArthur Study Bible, that I have marked up so much now. I'm working with this new one. So, so, I mean, I have chose the New King James because it speaks to me, okay? And if you are in a King James, it's easier to follow me, all that kind of stuff. But you think about the Word of God, what does it say about itself? Well, the answer is this. We know that both Old and New Testament came, what's going to say about itself? It came by God's inspiration, therefore, they are not just mere words of men, But they are words that came from God who inspired men to bring the infallible revelation of God to mankind. Okay, that's the technical answer. We're just going to look at some scriptures that prove that the Old and the New Testament are inspired by God, given to men to write down God using their personalities, their situations, uh, historically over probably a 1500, 1600 period, 66 books. Uh, it's just kind of amazing how they all, of course, through all the scholars put it all together, the canon of the scriptures, but it's inspired of God. So we're going to find out if it's inspired by God. We're also going to find out when we go to chapter 19 of Psalms, of Psalm, the book of Psalms, that it's not only inspired, but it's, it's perfect. It's infallible. It's, it's totally righteous. You know, I thought about the illustration for that would be there's that, is that You and I have been saved, and we do righteous things at times, and sometimes we don't do righteous things, right? So I guess we could say we reflect righteousness many times because we have the Spirit of God in us. But when it comes to the Word of God, it is perfectly righteous. It's perfect. Uh, There's no improving it. It's as full as it's going to be. It's the the most complete revelation that it can be. It's perfect. It's infallible. Now, many times, obviously, uh, man can misinterpret the scripture I had a youth one time say how do you interpret scripture so I gave him an example of how you don't want to interpret and I flipped over in the New Testament said right there it says and Judas Iscariot went out and hung himself he goes yeah oh let's turn over here the Old Testament Uh, do you likewise I said that's not a good way to interpret the Bible they're out of context I said so mainly what I'm trying to tell you is whatever you're reading young man let's say you read Judas Iscariot went out and hung himself well then find the context why did he do that What happened after I Put it into context. And so when we're taking God's word um, in for the renewing of our minds, uh, for the refresh of our spirits, it's very important. Uh, The word of God is infallible. It is inspired by God. I know that man has done this and done that. I was explaining to someone the other day how man was one that put chapters and verses so we could memorize, reference easy. Otherwise, it was just the written word. And so there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Any more than there's having several good translations. There's nothing wrong with that either. So, and I think God can take care of things that we might be worried about during all those little things in the canon of scripture. He can take care of those things, and, and he still honors his word. His word never returns to him void. And so so what I want to do is I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. And, of course, remember, we're trying to prove... Uh, the question is that that God's word is inspired, both Old and New Testament, and it's also we're going to find out that it's perfect. It, it it needs no improvement. it It is infallible. It's inspired by God, who is perfect. So why wouldn't it be infallible, right? And perfect, and righteous. Look at Second Peter chapter one. Did I say First Peter? I'm sorry. I wonder why Robin and Kim were flipping because they were actually listening to me. Um, so I apologize. Second Peter. Chapter 1, I'll give you time to turn there. Verse 16 through 21, I'm going to read those verses. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. Remember when the Spirit of God came down during baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit came upon him. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Remember when they had the transfiguration? And he said, this is my Son. You know, listen to him, right? And then he says, verse 19 of 2 Peter, by the way. And so we had the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, and by the way, by the time Peter mentions Scripture, he means Old and New Testament, right? Not just the prophets, but the apostles. That no prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or inspired by the Holy Spirit, as they were nudged or tugged. And so the first thing we find out there in 2 Peter chapter 1 concerning God's word being Full, inspired from God, who's infallible. So obviously, what He's going to have to inspire men to say is infallible. It's without error, and it's good for doctrine, reproof, instruction, as Paul would tell Timothy. Well, we find out that that uh, the apostles in that day, he said earlier in verse sixteen through through eighteen, he says, when we brought you the word, when we brought you that New Testament word that we we're, we're preaching to you, he said. We didn't, come th- we didn't say it because we're cunning and we're wise or, you know, some kind of divisive way. We, we're just telling you what we've seen, heard, and know to be true, what we heard ourselves and what God has inspired us to say. Because he said, whether it was at Jesus' baptism when we heard the Spirit of God speak and say, my beloved son, or at the transfiguration, you know, Peter, James, and John were there. And so he says, as the apostles, we were eyewitnesses of God speaking, speaking concerning his son, Jesus, being God's chosen son, uh, whether it was at his baptism or the transfiguration uh, of the three, uh, with the three there, and so of Elijah, Moses, and, and Jesus. He said, That's one of the things he said we can tell you is that when we speak, when we're, when we're writing, we're writing what God has told us to write, what, what we've heard and seen. And we write down in these gospels, for one thing, let alone the epistles. And so we see that, first of all, that the word of God, what it says about itself, is that the word that the apostles are writing came from God, just like it did in those eyewitness accounts. The word that we're given to you about Jesus and who he really is, the chosen one, it came from God. We didn't just devise it up ourselves. And uh, the other day, I was talking to somebody, and... uh, they were wanting to discuss, and it was somebody non-related to the church, but they wanted to discuss different commentaries that I might use or different commentaries that are out there. And I told them that a couple of them that I, I really refer to for reference more than anything else. But they had a lot of critique against all these commentaries that different preachers, and I get it. You know, They might be of a different school of thought. They might be of a different theological you know, turn and everything but but it was a preacher i was talking to and i said well let me ask you a question i said when you preach from a text i said do you not make comments because what he was saying was commentaries are no good at all because of maybe two or three guys that he doesn't like you know maybe i don't like their theology either he said yeah i said so what you're saying is when you preach you're preaching a commentary on the text oh yeah I said, so there's nothing wrong with a commentary There's another moment, make it a comment, I mean, about a text. I mean, otherwise, what we would do here is I would just read verse 16 to 21, and we'd turn the page and read some more. Without any comments, any observations, any form of instruction, but yet we'll find out when we we get into the book of Acts eventually that once Peter preached and everything, everybody got saved, they were sitting around talking about the apostles' doctrine. They were actually commenting and discussing and learning deeper what was happening, what was being said. So the point is, is that these apostles are saying, basically, the comments we've been making in our, in our, in our Gospels and here in the epistles, we didn't just make it up. We know they saw an eyewitness what God said and saw what happened. He said, but we're telling you what God has revealed to us, to you. So it's inspired by God. It is originated by God. And because it's originated by God, we know it's inspired by God. And so he says in verse 16 through 18, these apostles are eyewitnesses and they're only speaking what they've been moved to write down. So look at verse 19 to 21 again. He talked about the New Testament. Now he kind of refers to the prophets or the prophecy, that is speaking God's message from the Old Testament concept. And he says, and so... And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. In other words, what we've been preaching to you as eyewitnesses, and God has inspired us to say, only confirms what the Old Testament's been saying. It's going to happen, what will happen. And so he says there that that that, that prophetic word confirms what we're preaching. In other words, it gives more light to the prophetic word. What we're preaching gives more light, gives more revelation, and unfolds the mystery. And then he says this comment, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, if we took the modern, I guess, thought of that, that would mean that someone could say, well, when you read the Bible, you interpret it one way, I interpret it another. What he's saying is, is that he's talking about referencing what the New Testament is now at that time being revealed confirms the Old Testament that had already been revealed. Therefore, it's of no... In other words, it must interpret itself. The scripture must interpret the scripture, the Old Testament being confirmed, confirming the new. That's what he means by that. I had a youth, another youth one time in Wagner. He said, he said how do you interpret the Bible? I remember I told him context, right? And I told him, I said, look, I said, let's take John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. One verse. He said, okay. He said, interpret. I said, well, there's only one meaning to that verse, that God so loved that he gave his Son as a sacrifice, and if you believe in him, you'll not perish, but have everlasting life. I said, now, that's that's only one way to interpret it. I said, now, there may be many applications, number one, to a lost person compared to a saved person, because as a saved person, you could say, Okay, God loved me so much, I am saved. And there'd be other applications. Just like if you're lost, there's only one application, right? And so what I told him is that, once again, interpretation, there's only one meaning to that scripture. But what Peter's trying to say is that, as you think about what we as apostles have been telling you that didn't come through cutting, devised you know, words, It only confirmed what God was already saying about Jesus. And the prophecies, those of them, have confirmed what we've had to say. Therefore, it's of no private interpretation. It must interpret itself. That's why we compare Scripture to Scripture. And you say, well, Brother Steve, sometimes when you're preaching up there through a book, you're not referring to this Scripture and that Scripture. And I'm going to tell you why. I may occasionally throw out a Scripture reference to help us get some clarity But this is what I've done in my my studies over the years. I try to study the main doctrines, like in our Baptist faith and message, you know, about Scripture, God, man, Jesus. I try to understand those main things so that when we're reading these things, we pull out the plain things that are based off what we already know is true. That's how I preach. I I, I try to have a grasp of the main things, those, those essential or fundamental things that we do believe, doctrinally and theologically throughout the Bible that, that uh, complements itself so that when we come to a text like this, I can pull out the plain things. Now, I didn't coin those phrases, main things and plain things. If you listen to Alistair Begg, the Scottish preacher, he uses that. And that just made so much sense to my little brain how I work. I work in acronyms and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, and that's what Peter's saying here. When it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to the New Testament, the apostles are only speaking of what they've seen, heard, and to be true, and God has inspired them to write the New Testament, the epistles, the gospels. And he says, and when it comes to the Old Testament, it still comes from that same infallible God who who is infallibly revealing to mankind who Jesus is, and the Old Testament only confirms what we're saying, let alone what we've seen. And therefore, if you're looking at the old and the new, which one kind of reveals more than the other as you go through, he says, both of them are what you use to interpret the Scripture, to let Scripture interpret itself. That's the best commentary. That's what I told my friend the other day. I said, that's the best commentary. I said, that's why I only have a couple that I go to of a couple of guys that I kind of trust, maybe what school of thought they come from, uh, their background, all that kind of stuff, you know, their theological bent. That's why I only have a couple. I know a young man uh, that pastors a church, and of course, he's got more of a master's degree. I think he might even be a doctorate now. I think he might? He's a young man. He still calls me Papa Smurf because he asked my daughter out for a date one time, and I said, well, you're a couple years older. Why don't y'all just be friends? And this is what he did, David. He goes, well, you appreciate me asking you, don't you, Papa Smurf? And I touched his shirt. I said, absolutely. I said, I appreciate the last man I had held hands with that died in my hands. Of course, I'm a hospice chap, and he didn't get it. He just thought he was dead. But anyways, he had a picture on Facebook because I guess they're going to start the book of Romans come the first of the year. He does expository book by book. He comes from that school of thought, that train. And I told, I'm real proud of him. But it was kind of interesting. <clears throat> he had a picture there. And I don't know how many comment, commentaries he had on the book of Romans, which is fine and dandy. And of course, the picture shows all those. He says, I guess you know what book we're going into next year. And I think that's great that he's got all that. I told you before, I have a small library because I've read Spurgeon's book to his students. And one of the things he said is, if you can't buy a bunch of books, buy good books. And I live by that philosophy. I'm kind of a minimalist. Uh, I have what I have, and that's all I need. However, I have a good friend that they know. He had a plethora of a library, and he was a better reader than I am, for one thing. But, you know, and there's not, so there's not a good or bad either way. It's just that's what works for me. But the point is, is that we know God's Word is, came to us infallible, inspired by God, The New Testament and the Old Testament confirm each other; therefore, it is a full revelation from God. The Old and the New Testament. Uh, If you got to see my resume, I talk about how I subscribe or, like words, articulate my faith using uh, the Baptist Faith and Message and the 1689 Baptist Confession. But then it goes on to say that I. Really articulate my faith based off both Old and New Testament. Okay, now I had a church one time. We were in the Book of Genesis, and uh, we were in Book of Genesis Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. It took me a year and a half to preach the Book of Genesis, but there was one little preacher there, a little country preacher in our church, and he said, "Well, we don't need the Old Testament." You know, he was a New Testament only guy, and I get it. I get I get what he's saying, but, but but this is what he would say: the Old Testament so. Irrelevant to our day to day. Well, that was in 2002. Do you think in 2023, if we started in the first, just the first three chapters, we might deal with some issues like evolution, marriage, gender, order? I, I, we would deal with a lot of things that are very relevant. And they were then, too. Don't get me wrong. It's just in his mind, he was of the school of thought that you preach from the New Testament because we're the New Testament church. Well, then why did Paul say to Timothy in the New Testament, all scriptures are inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction? Well, because that's what Paul meant. That's what Peter's saying here. What we're telling you in the New Testament came from God. We eyewitnessed it We were inspired by God to write what we're writing, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the chosen one. And the Old Testament has confirmed what we're saying because they were inspired by God as God moved men in those days. And therefore, if you're going to interpret, the only private interpretation, if you want to call it that, is from the Scripture itself. You compare Scripture to Scripture. You bring it into context. My pastor that ordained me, I was a fairly young I guess called minister. I wasn't even ordained yet. And he made the comment one Sunday morning. he goes, get your pens and paper out. And I'm thinking, well, I, was, I was like a student, you know. And he said, there's there's a, there's three ways to interpret God's word. And I'm thinking, he goes, get ready to write it down. There's a, this is the only three ways you can interpret word God's word. Boy, I have my pen already. He said, number one, context. And boy, I wrote down context. C-O-N-T-E-X-T. I'm ready for the second He goes, number two, Context. Oh, wrote it down. I'm still writing it down. He goes, number three. Context. I'm about halfway through context. I go, oh, I get it. Keep it in context. Look at the verses before, afterwards, comparing Scripture to Scripture. Let it interpret itself. So what the Bible's saying about itself is whether we're in the New Testament, like Peter mentioned, that was inspired by God, or the Old Testament, if they're confirming each other, then we're probably on the right track. And they're the only way to interpret to let it interpret itself. So what the Bible, first of all, is saying about itself is it's the best commentary on itself, whether you're in old or new. And if you look deep enough in the old, you'll find a confirmation in the new and vice versa because there's a beautiful harmony here. The theologians call it the redemptive narrative, right? The gospel story from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, the Bible tells us a lot of things about a lot of things. There's some things we can find in the Bible that science found out later, like the water cycle. Oh, it's right there in the text, you know, or something like that, or the earth is round and different things like that. But ultimately, this Bible, no matter what else it can help us with, scientifically, relationally, maritally, financially. Me and a lady was talking about Monday when I went to visit her. Um, we were talking about how in the book of Proverbs, you know, it ref- when it refers to women, given instruction anyway, so it talks about the harlot and, and the virtuous woman, but on men, it means about, talks about men being either lazy or diligent. It, 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 the Bible has a lot of good practical advice right there in Proverbs, very pithy, very short, very quick. The Psalms is very poetic and songy-like because it's a psalm, right? But more than anything, what is the central theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation amongst, amongst all those other things that it can help us with? Its main theme is to lead mankind to a saving relationship with God. And when you go from Genesis to Revelation, it just unfolds clearer and clearer and clearer that that one that's going to crush the head of Satan and bruise his heel in Genesis is Jesus Christ himself. By the time you get to the book of John, you know who it is. So that's the main theme is that, that in this Bible, amongst many things that we can learn and grow and, and, and live right, It teaches us that redemptive narrative, and whether it's old or new, they confirm each other, they affirm each other, and therefore, Scripture interprets Scripture. So that's the first answer, is that it is infallible, it comes from God, it's it's inspired of God, Old and New Testament, and all the Scriptures are profitable. Number two, go to Psalm 19 not first psalm or second psalm, just psalm, psalm 19, and of course, I I know I preached on this that, I think, Sunday evening, uh, the night you voted me in, praise the Lord, pass the chicken on that, and that's the gospel chicken, by the way, you eat that on Sunday morning, right, my, it was kind of funny, my, my dad told me, he said, we didn't eat gospel chicken son on Sunday, I said, what'd you eat, daddy? He said, we had liver and onions. I said, why? He said, because we raised cattle to milk and for beef. And because all these other things had value, they had to sell those. And they got left ho- home with the liver. So they had liver and onions growing up, my dad and his brothers and sisters. So anytime time they get together, they try to find a place that's, that sells liver and onions to have. I'm like, no, thank you. But um, so we know that God's word is inspired by God, both Old and New Testament. It comes from God, and because it comes from God, what? It's infallible. It's perfect, right? So let's look at verse 7 through 11 of Psalm 19 and talk about that perfection. Talk about that infallibility, that there is nothing uh, tainted in it. Look at verse 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, Making wise the simple. And he's talking more than just Proverbs wise. He's talking about you're ignorant to the gospel and God opens your eyes, right? To make you wise. The statute verse eight, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, that is by these statutes, by these judgments, by these commandments, moreover by them your servant is warned and, is, and in keeping them there is great reward. So we know that God's word is inspired, but we also know that God's word is infallible. All of God's word, because if Paul says all scripture over the New Testament, he's also referring to the Psalms, right? And so we know that God's word is perfect, perfect in in giving life, because he said there that the law is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple, that is, those that are willfully ignorant concerning God, it opens their eyes to make them wise to turn to God, the God of the heavens, there in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm chapter 19. God's word is perfect and life-giving. God's word is righteous, and with that righteousness brings joy. I mean, you think about it, when whether you were 5 or 25 or 95 when you got saved, when your eyes... Uh, were, eyes were open to receive the righteousness of Christ, it, it caused you to rejoice. That's all I knew for about three months is I was just very happy. I'm kind of an emotional bug. I'm kind of a social bug. And all I knew is for three months, I didn't know a lot, but I knew I'd gotten saved and I was pretty stinking happy. And it was kind of interesting because at Ramsey Winch, I just got bumped back from a, from a trainee fabricator to a janitor because they had just gone through a, a, layoff and everything. So I got bumped back to a janitor, but I was making the same amount of pay as a fabricator. And those first three months as a believer, I was just beaming from ear to ear. I was kind of bummed out that I was moved as a janitor. But this is what I found out in God's providence. Had I just remained in the fab shop, which was about 1,000 square foot, I still would have been happy. I still would have been telling people about Jesus as much as I could. But because I got bumped back to a janitor, now I'm covering 10,000 square feet. And I'm cleaning machines of people that I cleaned a year ago, and now they see a difference. There was one guy, I mean, and when you're doing production, there ain't no downtime, right? Even a janitor, there's downtime. I had a foreman that I'd been under when I took care of that 10,000 square foot early on. And uh, I'm sitting there cleaning up machines, steel chips, all that kind of stuff, dumping stuff, and her of the pager, uh, Steve Holstein, come to so-and-so's, uh, foreman's office. I'm thinking, oh, I'm in trouble. Because it was still a union shop. I'm in trouble. Uh, I've done something wrong. And I sit down, I go over there. He goes, sit down, boy. Uh, yes, sir. And of course, back then he could smoke a cigar. He's smoking a big old stogie. And he says, what's wrong with you? Well, what do you mean, Mr. Bershear? Well, you used to do this. Now you do this. You know, it was all stuff outside of work. He knew that my life had changed. So I said, well, I'm glad you asked. And I spent the next hour, instead of cleaning up machines, cleaning up bathrooms, lunches, I spent an hour telling him about me getting saved, telling him about Jesus. And this man smoking a cigar, tearing up, 1983. And he says, I wish I knew Jesus. I said, well, you can. I said, I don't know everything. This is what I did. And it was kind of weird. He bowed his head there with a cigar in his mouth while he was smoking it and asked Jesus to save him. Now, his life did change. He still smoked his stogies. He died of some kind of cancer later on. But it was a big revival in that place. It was just kind of interesting. And then I'd run into people that I knew when I was lost, and they would just kind of keep their mouth shut. Well, now they know my life's changed, so then they would want to read the Bible with me because they're saved during lunchtime or during break time. There was a big revival there from 83 to 85 before the oil bust at Ramsey Winch. It was just kind of interesting how God did everything. And it was all because God saved me, inspired that person, inspired that person, got that person saved. It was just amazing. And it says here that God's word, word is so perfect, so perfected, that, that when it is shared, when, it is, when God opens their eyes, it makes them wise. makes them wise unto salvation, and it causes them to have joy. God's word is birthed in your heart. And he goes on to say that not only is God's word perfect and life-giving, not only is God's word righteous and brings rejoicing, but God's word is valuable, valuable in its perfection, that it will satisfy your every need, and it will cause you to trust, to trust him for the reward of obeying his word. Look at what he says there, verse uh, 10, 11. Moreover, not only can it enlighten your eyes, cause you to have joy, moreover, it is to be desired, Are they? it's more desired than gold, yea, the much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, that is, by these words, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, that is, keeping his words, it brings great reward." So we see that God's Word is not only inspired in the New and Old Testament, who who confirm each other, affirm each other, that it is inspired of God, that it does have a consistent message of redemption and other things in it. It's also a perfect Word, a Word that is a perfect, full, and complete revelation of God, so full and so perfect and so complete, it can make the, the simple wise unto salvation It can cause those who who have it uh, to learn righteousness, to rejoice. And it can cause those who have that righteousness, have that joy, have that awakening, have that eye-opening, enlightening moment to be a people that are satisfied by it and therefore find great reward, great fulfillment. In those two or three years, as a brand new believer, even after I got laid off there, I went over to Ramsey Wentz popping rivets, you know, aluminum panel shelters. And we saw a lot of revival over there, too. It was just kind of interesting how God works, uh, in, especially in your early believing life. And me and, me and Bruce would talk about those things and, and be amazed by it. And so when we think of God's word, what it says about itself is that it is, an, it is from God, inspired by God, and it therefore is infallible. And because it's inspired by God and infallible, it is valuable for not only salvation, but as we would say, life and godliness. And it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding. That's what the Word of God says about itself. So I'm going to put this down concerning a believer because now we're going to start prayer here in a little bit. both the Old Testament and the New Testament from the scriptures that we read today in 2 Peter and Psalm 19. That's just not an exhaustive, but the Old Testament and the New Testament are trustworthy. They're trustworthy that they are God's revelation, that he inspired the apostles, he inspired the prophets to speak and to write as God's accurate and infallible record and message to all mankind. In the Old and New Testament, uh, he, he he had it recorded as God's only and God's full revelation and message so that we can live out our daily lives rightly, and, of course, we can uh, live out our eternal life righteously. So the Word of God is inspired by him, infallible because of him, and it's there to not only save our souls, first and foremost, that's the central theme, redemption, Right? But it also teaches us how to live out that redemptive life and therefore share the idea that all men need to be reconciled to God. So when we think of God's Word tonight and we're fixing to do our prayer time, just think about the richness of God's Word, the value. I mean, he said it was worth more than fine gold. Now, I don't own any gold that I, that I know of. Uh, we just recently... And I have to use a little tape on this finger because when I originally bought it, my finger was a little bit fatter. I weighed a little bit more. But this is like a stainless steel or whatever it is, maybe sterling silver. But originally I had a gold ring when we got married. And by 2009, I had gone from being married in 1986 to 165 pounds to about 310 pounds. And I didn't know I had diabetes. I was just inflamed, you know. And so this ring could not go off, and I had to have it cut off. And by 2009, you know, uh, we had the real estate hit, and stock markets go down, and, and we were in between this and between that job. And so I, I traded that ring in because we needed some cash. And even with that little piece cut out, I told Karen the other day, I said, when we bought it in 1986, it was about $125 for a gold ring, just a regular band. By the time I sold it in 2009, it was worth $300. It doubled in value. So I guess that's the only gold I've ever had. But that was pretty valuable because that year we needed $300. And I can't remember what we spent it on, but it was some bill. That was later on, maybe two or three years ago, that we bought this sterling silver ring. And like I said, I put a little, <laughs> put a little piece of tape, like a class ring, you know, that a girl would put on. That way it doesn't slip off a finger too hard when it, when it gets cold. But he says the word of God is more valuable than fine gold. And I guarantee you that ring I had probably wasn't fine gold. It was just probably as fine as it needed to be at Moody's Jewelry back in the day. It was fine for me and Karen's budget. That's how valuable God's word is. Not because God's going to buy you things, but because God is going to enrich you so deeply as you see the old and the new confirming those main things and pulling out the plain things. And it's, ah, ah, yeah, those little moments of, ah, oh, wow. You know, whether it's being presented to you or you discover it yourself. I think about my favorite verse in the Bible, Psalm one nineteen one oh five, 105, and we wrote those in our wedding Im- uh, invitation it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my pathway. Now, you think about it. It's a light unto our feet. It helps me see where I'm at in the now and now. It gives me a better perspective, but it also gives me a lamp into the future, a light into the future to see where God's leading me. Just think of that one characteristic of God's word. It's going to help you see where you're at now and see where you need to go next. Just that value alone, let alone can save your soul, and we just go on down the list, right? We can just go on and on. Or it could help you, maybe perhaps help a friend. I had a classmate call me at 1 o'clock yesterday, or a little bit after I left the office. I think I was headed into Tulsa to get some CNG fuel, and she got on the phone, and she just needed to talk about some things. She's a single lady. Uh, She won't come here. She lives like an oligarch but she really needed some help. And I put some tools today to maybe give her. I'm going to meet her tomorrow at 3 o'clock outside of a Wendy's and quick trip there in Owasso and just give her some tools, things that I have to help her get her thinking straight and and, and minister to her. But the other day when I was talking to her for almost, well, she was talking mostly for two hours, believe it or not, and I was listening. But occasionally I would interject something. It was always something encouraging. It was always scripture-based. And she grew up in the church. She said, oh, I didn't know that. I said, well, you didn't know the scripture? said said, okay. This is what the scripture says. And her bottom line is, Steve, I don't feel a value. And right there in a parking lot, I just backed up my truck because I knew it was a crisis mode because she's been on an alert before, if you know what I'm saying. And she's reached out to me. And I read her Psalm 139. It says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I said, God even knew you young lady, before you were ever formed. And he's fashioned all the days for you. I said, you are valuable to God. I said, even if I fell off the edge of the face of the earth and everybody else did, I said, and there you are in the darkness, Psalm 139, verse 11 and 12. Even if you're in the utter part of the darkness, I said, the psalmist says in that same psalm, but I'm not alone. You're there. You're the light God. And that's what she needed to hear at that moment. Now, just used the word of God, to paint a picture for her of her value. And I could hear her over the phone weeping and crying. Thank you so much. I was, well, i just tell you what the Word of God says. And then she told me some things she would like to do. She's limited. So I gathered some tools that I have. And, and like I said, I'm going to deliver them sometime tomorrow afternoon after I get done working here or whatever else I do. And, and Karen knows I'm going there, okay? And, of course, Karen knows what the gifts are and everything. And they're just things that will... Help her, uh, I guess, like words, dig in what's confirming in the old and new. There'll be some tools, because I think she has a Bible, but maybe she don't have any kind of regime or some kind of routine or some tool to help her look at the Bible to learn those kinds of things that I was sharing with her. So if you could just put Nikki, N I K I, on the prayer list. Uh, She's saved. She just had a lot of tragedy over her life, over years. She even told me things that were happening in high school. I had no clue.